Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Last week, in our discussion of the Exodus, we mentioned that the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai was a conditional covenant. And we distinguished this covenant of Moses from the one God made with Abraham, which was an unconditional covenant. Now to be sure, even in the conditional covenant, grace is everywhere, even in the Mosaic covenant. Remember from last week, the Israelites sinned both before and right after the giving of the law. Before the giving of the law, with the murmuring against God in the wilderness, and after the giving of the law, in the creation of and the worshiping of the golden calf. And despite the fact that the latter incident, the golden calf incident, directly defied the first two of the Ten Commandments. Despite that, They are not abandoned or cast off forever, which, according to a conditional covenant, could have happened. The Israelites, despite those sins, are forgiven. So we have to remember when we talk about the law and the giving of the law, grace abounds here too. That said, in this covenant, the people of God are called to fulfill their end of the bargain. Better said, they are to obey the law to keep the covenant in good working order. The instructions that we see in this book, the book of Leviticus, comprises what you might call the maintenance manual of the Torah. The maintenance of manual of the Torah shows how the Israelites are to maintain their covenant relationship with Adonai or God. Remember, we said God revealed himself in the specific name of Yahweh, but that name, even among Paul's time, wasn't really said out loud often. So I'm going to call Yahweh. Adonai from here on out. So again, Leviticus, think maintenance manual that shows the Israelites how to maintain their covenant with Adonai. And in true maintenance manual fashion, it teaches Israel best practices for covenant faithfulness. That is, what the covenant expects of them, and how to keep that relationship in good working order. 
It also instructs them on troubleshooting. That is, how to repair their relationship when their failure to follow these best practices causes a breakdown. So, to help us keep a framework for it, to help us keep our minds understanding it, think of Leviticus as a maintenance manual. Shows the Israelites how to maintain their covenant relationship. The maintenance manual has best practices or how to keep their relationship in good working order. And troubleshooting. How to repair that relationship when their failure to follow it causes a breakdown. One more thing I'll say in this intro before we jump into the book. The theme of the book of Exodus, or Leviticus, sorry. If there's one theme, that theme is holiness. The holiness of God, the holiness of God's people. And while there's not actually all that much narrative in this book, this book is organized around that theme of holiness. Now, we'll see much more on this in a minute. So like the last two weeks, I'm going to start with that thousand-foot view. And in this thousand-foot view, I'll give you a framework for what's to come. And then we'll move into the hundred-foot more detailed view. Again, let that section, section just kind of wash over you. Now, I'm going to try to milk this maintenance manual metaphor for all it's worth. And the troubleshooting section that I just mentioned, it actually comes first. It comes before the best practices section. The first few chapters of Leviticus explain how to restore the default settings of the Israelites' relationship with Adonai when it's gone sour. And it designates those who are responsible for restoring the default settings. This section, it climaxes with the Day of Atonement, the annual Day of Atonement. The Jews still celebrate this today. It's Yom Kippur. And this, the, the Day of Atonement, think of it as the master reset button. It's a, an annual master reset button for the whole nation. And the final section, often described as the holiness code, is what presents the best practices section, or the fine-tuning of the instructions of the troubleshooting section. And this section, it lays out comprehensive ethical instructions and teaches about basic worship practices and festivals. So, in our minds, we have the troubleshooting section, the sacrifices, getting the relationship back in order when it's gone sour. We've got the master reset button, the Day of Atonement, and we have the best practices section, the holiness code. Again, all under that kind of metaphor of the maintenance manual. In a word, in Leviticus, God tells the Israelites and their priests how to make offerings in the tabernacle. Again, remember that house that we mentioned last week. It essentially kind of houses God, so to speak. And in Leviticus, they're taught how to conduct themselves while camped around this holy tent sanctuary. The book presents it as like 
The tribes are in concentric circles around the tabernacle that's at the center of the camp. Now, the whole book of Exodus takes place over a month to a month and a half tops. This is over a very brief section of time. And again, there's not all that much narrative here. And the, the, the length of time that we're talking about is between the completion of the tabernacle and the Israelites' departure from Sinai to go to the promised land. So again, think maintenance manual, troubleshooting section, master reset button, best practices. So here's the more detailed view. From the start, it should be noted that the book of Leviticus presupposes Adonai as the one who has delivered Israel out of its bondage in Egypt and has covenanted with them to be their God. So it presupposes Genesis and Exodus. It also conceives of God as resident among the Israelites in their camp. Following the theme of the creation account in Genesis, we see in Leviticus that God wishes to dwell with humans. And this book teaches that faithful performance of the sanctuary rituals, purity, and character can keep that possible. God wishes to dwell with humans just like in the garden How do we make that possible? How does Israel make that possible? Through their faithful performance of sacred rituals, which is very important. Character, ethical, ethics, but also purity, the notion of being clean and unclean. And we're going to get to that. Now, in the first few chapters of the book, the people are shown how to worship God. This is the troubleshooting section I just mentioned that explains how to restore the Israelites' relationship with God when it's gone sour. And there's five different kinds of sacrifices and grain offerings listed. I can't, unfortunately, because of time, get into them. Check that out. Um, But this worship will take the form of a variety of sacrifices. The term sacrifice is a well-chosen one for those who offer gifts to God surrender ownership of what they have and what they have's potential future profit. Therefore, they are giving up something of value to God. The book also makes clear that Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his family are to be the priests. Now, this is interesting because if you remember from last week, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the one who built and led worship around the golden calf. So once again, we see radical forgiveness. Not just a forgiveness of like, I forgive you, but also putting someone like that in a position of leadership. The priestly leadership. However, soon after Aaron and his sons were ordained... His sons violate the altar entrusted to them. And they pay for this sin with their lives. Now this goes to show, I know a lot of, like, maybe this is less so for Episcopalians, but for a lot of Christians, 
We seem to say, well, like literal, uh, ritual doesn't really matter. It's all about your heart before God. But what Leviticus is saying is that God, at least in this part of the redemption story, takes ritual holiness very seriously. It's a very big deal. And mediating between God and people is serious business. Moses' sons die because they have done it in an unworthy manner. Now, after the ordination of Aaron and the law specific to priests are given, the text turns to issues of what I mentioned a little bit earlier, of cleanliness or purity. And just like the ritual aspect, purity in the book of Leviticus is taken very seriously. Now, you may have heard this, and you probably know this, the people of Israel are expected to be holy as their God is holy. But in this section, it also makes clear that what is holy can be polluted. If someone is unclean and approaches the tabernacle, this brings danger not just on her, but on the whole nation. This cleanliness section covers such issues as diet, the purification of lepers, even the discharge of male and female bodily fluids. Again, rituals and everyday earthly activities are taken very seriously in the book of Leviticus. The people of God are to avoid ritual impurity and to make atonement when they fail. This brings us all the way up to chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. And this wraps up the troubleshooting section that I talked about with the Master Reset button. According to the text, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, arises upon the death of Aaron's two sons. It becomes a time for for public repentance and community cleansing. So the sin of Aaron's sons is not just their own. It affects the community, the nation. And the liturgy for the day calls upon the high priest, in this case Aaron, to offer a sacrifice, not just for his sins, but for the sins of the whole nation. Then he is to lay his hands upon a scapegoat. And this scapegoat symbolically, so he symbolically lays his hands upon it, and then he sends this scapegoat off into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins of the people off with it. So he's symbolically putting the sins of the people on the scapegoat, sending them out, symbolically, of the camp. And the New Testament has a field day with this. And I don't know if if any lights are going off in your mind, but this reminds us of how the New Testament portrays the atonement that Christ has made. And if you aren't familiar with that, we are going to get there. We're going through the whole Bible, but this is just kind of a foreshadow. Now, after the instructions for the Day of Atonement... The book comes to, again, what I've called the best practices section. This is chapters 17 through to 26, through the end. And this section is oftentimes called the holiness code. 
Throughout these chapters is where you find, and it's a, it's a refrain in the book. It's not just once, it's over and over. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now these laws, these forbid misdeeds ranging from sacrificing in the wrong places to committing incest to worshiping foreign deities. There's a whole lot in that section I can't get comprehensive. You can check it out. But as a whole, this section voices a concern, and this is the main point, a concern that the Israelites maintain their own unique identity and ritual purity. Again, that's taken very seriously in the book of Leviticus. You are not to be like the nations. And finally, this section also prescribes the three annual festivals, those of Passover. You've probably seen our Jewish friends celebrate that. The Festival of Weeks and the Festival of Tabernacles. So in conclusion, again, we're doing Numbers 2 today. That's why we're going a little faster. I'm going to talk a little bit about the reception history of the book of Leviticus in later Jewish and Christian circles And I'm going to do that because neither Jews nor Christians receive Leviticus wholesale. As you may have guessed, the early church had to deal with issues in Leviticus that seemed problematic. Leviticus prescribes sacrifices, continued sacrifices, circumcision, and detailed dietary regulations. The Christian message is going out to the Gentiles, right? Paul at the council in Acts at Jerusalem. You can pretty much eat whatever you want now. So what do you do with Leviticus? Well, led by St. Paul and the promptings, of course, of the Holy Spirit, early Christians determined that such works were unnecessary for salvation. And unnecessary not only for salvation, but for keeping the covenant relationship intact. Again, we'll get to this later, but there is a new covenant with the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, for Jews, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there was no longer a house for God to dwell in among his people. The temple, which follows up the tabernacle that we read about, is destroyed. And the rabbis, they interpreted this as the judgment of God upon his people. And so what the rabbis do is they substitute the study of the sacrificial laws for the performance of the laws and the rituals. Does that make sense? They can't do the sacrifices anymore. But now what they do is they study Torah. Post-temple Jews, just like Christians, emphasize certain parts of Leviticus now. Most obviously, the dietary laws, kosher. In Leviticus 11, those laws are retained. Now, interestingly enough, in the medieval period, the Jewish philosopher, I'm going to butcher his name, so just say it out loud, Maomides, He argued 
That sacrifice was God's concession to human frailty and never really was God's intention in the first place. That's not a view held by all Jews. Keep that in mind. But that's interesting because that sounds a lot like what the early church does. So even in Jewish circles, there isn't necessarily a uniform view. This philosopher, he's not like a heretic. He's kind of a big deal, but not all Jews hold to everything he said. In fact, our Jewish friends across the street, I don't think would hold to what he said. Now, another interesting development occurred in our own faith. And this was the church father, maybe you've heard of him before, Origen. He had this theory of scripture interpretation that distinguished the literal from what he viewed as the more important spiritual meaning of the text. Let me give you an example. In chapters 1 through 7, the chapters where we get the troubleshooting section, where we get all the sacrifices, he said, we find a prediction of Christ here whose sacrifice was superior to and fulfilled the system in Leviticus. And in fact, views similar to his dominated scriptural interpretation of Leviticus for a millennium. And not just Leviticus, but large parts of the Old Testament. I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I think we Protestants sometimes get uncomfortable with this. But I think that this is a valid way, a valid sense of understanding the scriptures. And we'll talk more about the early and medieval theory of the multiple senses of scripture or the fourfold senses of scripture in weeks to come. But for this book, and in some Many laws we find in Leviticus are no longer applicable literally, either in Jewish or Christian contexts. But that doesn't mean that we simply ignore it or pretend that it's not there. For Christians, though some laws have been fulfilled in Christ, and on some level, all of them have been fulfilled in Christ And other laws appear purely culturally conditioned. We also see in the scriptures laws that are very important. We see laws that have a deep sense of concern for the poor. A deep sense of concern for the immigrant. In fact, Jesus' second favorite law of all is found here. Jesus doesn't make it up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Also, if we completely ignore Leviticus, we're going to have a really hard time understanding what's happening in the New Testament. If you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about how the Levitical system is fulfilled in Christ. If we don't read Leviticus, then we won't know how the New Testament works. So we ignore it at our peril. 
So ultimately what I'll say is, in addition to what I've said, is that Leviticus retains relevance for its insistence on the worship of God and God alone and moral living in response to God's holiness. I'm going to end Leviticus there, but as you've kind of seen in the weeks leading up to this one, I'm going to continue this train of thought in weeks to come and unpack it more. Moving on to Numbers. I hate doing two books because it's a little bit of overload, but I tried to make that understandable. In the book of Numbers, it continues the narrative of Genesis, Exodus, the very little narrative that's in Leviticus, but it continues. Numbers is probably the least unified of all the five books of the Torah. And what I mean by that is Numbers is like, it's an anthology of Jewish stories, law, ritual, and priestly lore. The author or authors of Numbers have no problem having this narrative completely interrupting it with some laws, starting that narrative right off where it stopped. So it's not like Genesis where it's like this very like deliberately crafted book with all these cues. Here's a new section. Numbers takes us from Mount Sinai, again where the law was given, all the way to the edge of the promised land. The book of Numbers, we said the book of Leviticus spanned a month, a month and a half. The book of Numbers spans 38 years. The book begins with, the, with Israel still at Sinai. And they're still at Sinai for the first 10 chapters of this book. We can't get out of Sinai. Then it chronicles their travels from Sinai to the oasis that is Kadesh Barnea. That is in the next 10 chapters. And then finally it brings us to Moab, which is just outside the promised land from chapter 22 to 36, the end. Now again, there's, there's no obvious literary structure, as I mentioned a second ago, but there are these two censuses that are found in Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26, and they frame this anthology. They frame the narrative. And what they function as, what they do is they contrast the Exodus generation, bad, with the conquest generation, good. So keep that in your mind. The text makes that clear. The Exodus generation, not so good. The conquest generation, better. But we'll see in Deuteronomy, they end up not faring so well either. So the 1,000-foot view. So the book of Numbers begins, as I said, with one generation and ends with another. Chapters 1 through 10 initiate preparations for Israel's departure to the Promised Land. Now, In these chapters, the camp is to be set apart from everything unholy and profane. Everything unholy, everything unclean. So that it can be a proper dwelling place within Israel 
for the presence of God. Chapters 10 through 22 tell the story of the journey from Sinai again to just outside of Canaan. But when they reach the oasis that is Kadesh Barnea, a land flowing with milk and honey, they do not trust God to deliver the promised land into their hands. And they refuse to go in. And for this, right, the promise that we've seen in books leading up to this point, what is the promise? The promise is the land. For this refusal of the promise, it's as if it's a refusal of heaven. They are judged. And the judgment being that this Exodus generation would not make it into the promised land. And I'll just say for a second, the text presents it as like God was going to destroy destroy them on the spot, but Moses, the faithful intercessor, pleads on their behalf, and he lets them live. And again, we talked about the faithful intercessor last week. Again, a running theme through the scripture. Who ends up being the ultimate faithful intercessor? Just keeping that in your mind. And for this judgment, though God has decided, this is a conditional covenant. They could have been, it could have been done with them. He decides he'll let them live, but they are to live under his care and provision in the wilderness for 40 years. The very thing that they've been complaining so much about. The last section of the book, chapters 23 through 36, show the threats the Israelites encountered while journeying in the wilderness, before detailing how the people of God would be holy in the promised land that was given to them. So let's jump more into the details. The book of Numbers, again, it's organized around a story that begins with the Exodus generation and ends with the conquest generation. At the beginning of the book, the first generation undertakes this census that I just talked about. They take this census to find out how many soldiers they would have for their upcoming battle for the promised land. The census also tallied the total number of the members of the clans of Levi who would be available for tabernacle duties. Think Leviticus. The Levites were the ones who, along with Moses and his family, served at the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is following them, actually leading them, to the promised land. The tabernacle was Adonai's house. He would accompany them on their journey. The Levites, who are around the temple, are just as important as the soldiers who would take the promised land. From here, they travel to the promised land, and while on their way, they are provided with a miraculous provision of food and water. Nevertheless, much like on their way from the Red Sea to Sinai after the Exodus, they complain and they murmur against God. These are a people who are not used to freedom. 
These are a people who were a long oppressed community. Israel, we see in these pages, has an, a deeply ingrained identity as a slave. And so to them, the familiar orderliness of Egypt, of the place that oppressed them, seems preferable to the insecurities of life lived from one oasis to another. And I don't know about you, but when I read that or say that out loud, I think of myself first and foremost. Now, when they arrive at Kadesh Barnea, just outside the Promised Land, again an oasis, they send out these 12 spies to scout the enemy's army. And after a gloomy reconnaissance report... The Israelites choose not to invade. The whole point of them coming here was to take this land. This is the promise given not just to them with their Mosaic covenant, but also in that unconditional covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they refuse to take it. The only two of the twelve who say, who trust the promise, are Caleb and Joshua. These are the only two calling their brothers and sisters, we need to go in. We need to trust the one who has delivered us out of bondage. But because Israel took the side of those who advised against entering the land, God forbids that generation from entering. And interestingly enough, shortly after this failure, just around this failure, Moses, the one who, like the Pentateuch, on some level is a biography of Moses, he, too, grows frustrated. Not just with the people of God, which you would think he has every right to be, after all that he had to put up with. But he also, as the text presents, in a weird way, it's a weird episode, but it presents him as being impatient with God, of him kind of murmuring too, and he commits this act of faithlessness. And for this, he too is not permitted to go into the land of promise. Now, after 40 years of nomadic life, during which these Israelites continually make trouble for Moses and thanklessly murmur against God, the last remnants of the Exodus generation Commit what they committed the day they received the covenant. They committed idolatry again. At that time, it was the golden calf. Here, it is at Pierre. I'm not saying that correctly. P-E-O-R. In Moab. And this is where they worship Baal or Baal, however you say it. This is in Numbers 25. And in an, again, in an episode very similar to the golden calf incident, this leads to judgment. Only this time, unlike the golden calf where God just freely forgives, in this instance, God judges, and God judges by plague. Again, these two books are emphasizing the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, and this act is the antithesis of that. 
And at the end of this episode, this act of faithlessness, that generation, with the exception of Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, have all died in the wilderness. This really is meant to be seen as deeply tragic and really meant to be shown as despite the continuing faithfulness of God, the people of God have been unfaithful. Again, this is a part in the story where if we're reading it for the first time, we might wonder, is God just finished with these people? Has God just given up altogether? And within the confines of the conditional covenant particularly, he could. But in the midst of all this murmuring, in the midst of all this rebellion, this lack of trust, we see not just judgment, but we also see mercy. We also see blessing. As the people of God are headed back to the land of promise, a Moabite king, Moabite king, a king of the land that they are to take, a king of the land of Canaan, is prepared to destroy them. And they're in trouble. Once again, there's no way. And this king of Moab, just to be sure that he's going to be successful, consults a medium. Expressly forbidden in the book, in these books. But the Israelites don't call him. The Canaanites do. And this medium Balaam, he, he is asked by the king to curse the Israelites. And Balaam has every intention of doing so. He essentially you know, wants to be in good, the good graces of this king. He goes up to do it. But God prevents him from cursing them. The reader is to see here that the blessings and promises of God have no match. In fact, Balaam ends up doing quite the opposite. He blesses the people of God, and the Israelites are victorious over the Moabites. In a nutshell, what this episode shows is that despite everything, God is faithful to his people. Even within the context of this mingling of the unconditional covenant with the conditional one. Nevertheless, the Lord is a God of mercy and grace. Now, after the Exodus generation had died, the next generation of Israelites immediately take the second military census. Again, what I said, how it frames the book, this is Numbers 26. And in this next census that they take, provisions are made for the invasion of the land. And this next generation, according to the text, is all on board. We trust the promise. We're not going to make the errors our ancestors made. They trust the God to make a way where there seems to be no way. And in fact, the text goes to show that they trust so much that before any of the invasions take place, they're allotting which land is to be for which tribe. Again, the, the text is showing a contrast here. They, these people haven't even gotten to the Canaan yet. They're like right on the border, and they are trusting so much that, okay, well, we know where we're going to be. So we know God's going to make that way. At the same time, this is where 
Joshua, remember one of the two slaves who said to go in, is appointed the successor of Moses. For again, Moses, though he is provided for up to the end, he is not permitted to go to the land of promise. We'll see much more about that next week with Deuteronomy. So Numbers concludes with Israel on the plains of Moab, poised to enter the land of promise under Joshua's leadership. But instead of the next book, Deuteronomy being about the taking of the land of promise, in Deuteronomy we'll take a step back and we will hear the long farewell speech or speeches of Moses. So in conclusion to this whole thing, particularly of numbers, but the whole thing. I talked about the reception history of Leviticus. What about the reception history among Jews and Christians of numbers? Well, right away, we see this reception history really early. For in the book of Deuteronomy, the first three chapters relate a summary of this whole wilderness wandering experience. This review emphasizes we saw implicitly stated in Numbers that God's faithfulness to Israel is true in spite or despite their faithlessness. Now, the authors of the later Hebrew Bible and of what we know as the Apocrypha focus on the wilderness story of Numbers, but even here in the Hebrew Bible, they're ignoring, for the most part, the ritual and legal material And focusing mostly on the narrative. And we see throughout time, not just in Christian circles, but even in Jewish circles, this, the big word is an exegetical bifurcation. And what that means is interpreters tend to treat the two major genres of numbers by focusing on one and ignoring the other. Focusing on the narrative ignoring the legal materials, focusing on the legal materials, largely ignoring the narrative. Now, Philo is a first-century Hellenistic Jew. He offers an extensive paraphrase of the wilderness story, but touches on the rituals only very briefly and under a whole separate category. His preferred strategy for drawing out the implications of Moses' life is allegory. And we'll see a lot of that in the early church as well. But there's also a contrast. In the Midrash, again, forgive me for my pronunciations, Midrash Sifre, this is a second century commentary, soon after Philo. In this commentary on Numbers, he virtually ignores the narrative in favor of of, uh, uh, not he, sorry, the Midrash, uh, ignores the narrative in favor of the legal interpretations of its ritual and legal prescriptions. So you see that even in Jewish history, we see focus on one, sometimes at the expense of the other. Now, Christians have been predominantly interested in the narrative material because in the narrative material, Christians have found that we find our story there. Whether Israel lived in sin, the Exodus generation, or in obedience, the conquest generation, God in all respects is faithful 
to his people and to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we found that ultimately God can be counted on, can we? Turning to the laws and rituals of numbers, Christian interpreters have generally neglected this material, largely because of the uniquely Christian viewpoint that the people of God are no longer subject to the minutia of Jewish law and ritual. So early Christians did not attempt to directly integrate Jewish rituals and laws into their theology so much as they sought a theological explanation for this. The early church fathers are asking questions like, why would God command the Jews to observe rites and keep laws that would become obsolete or fulfilled? The standard explanation of the church fathers was that God had accommodated primitive viewpoints of law and ritual in his revelation to Israel. Viewpoints that were naturally subject to become obsolete. Now, not all early church followers feel exactly like that, but that's, you, you see that among medieval Christians and early church Christians. But I think that in some respects, that approach, while I'm resonant to it, and I said I was resonant with allegorical takes on Scripture and, and, and symbolic takes in addition to the literal sense, but I think that this solution only goes halfway, for it fails to assess the function of the laws and rituals in the life of ancient Israel, and to ask what, 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 would, what might be the importance for us today, even if they are fulfilled in Christ. The most obvious theme that appears in the laws and rituals in these books is that theme that I mentioned earlier, God's holiness. And this is vividly expressed in these books. And Numbers 2, appreciation of divine holiness is essential to a healthy appraisal of what God has done for humanity in Jesus Christ. And not even before Jesus, what God has done We don't understand the New Testament if we have no sense of the otherness and holiness of God and the fact that God will not let sin and oppression just go. God is not, oh, everything's cool. That is not good news to sufferers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is holy. And at the end of the age, we are told that the powers of sin and death will be done away with forever. We see in Leviticus and Numbers this holiness really seen, really shown, really set forth. Without this, We don't understand the cross. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. 
or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.